Hey now, welcome to another edition of the Inside BS Show. My name is Dave Lorenzo, and we've got a first-time topic for you. This is something that everyone is going to get value from, because today I'm talking to Dr. Gerda Maisel, and she's going to help us understand why everyone who has either a serious medical condition or a family member with a serious medical condition needs a patient advocate. You're going to get so much out of this interview. I want you to, the first time you listen to this, sit back and just listen to the whole thing all the way through. The second time you listen to it, get a paper and a pen and write down what Dr. Gerda tells you because this information is going to change the way you approach your own medical situation or the medical situation of someone you care about. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Gerda to the Inside BS Show. Dr. Gerda, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So I need you to explain to us how you became a patient advocate. What was it that led you to become an advocate for people who have serious medical conditions or who have loved ones who have a serious medical condition? Well, Dave, I'm not kidding. It goes back to 1958. (laughs) That's when my mother was pregnant with my older brother, Simon. My mother, who was an immigrant, caught German measles when she was pregnant. And my brother was born with congenital rubella syndrome. And Mm. back then in the 50s and early 60s, They blamed the mother. You know, my brother was not developing properly, and initially they thought she was doing something wrong. Eventually, they figured out it was the German measles that she had. And then a few years later, so Simon lived at home with us. And then a few years later, uh, six years after I was born, my younger brother Joe was born. When Joe was born, my parents made this heart-wrenching decision to have Simon sent away. As a child, I thought it was a terrible thing. I was like, oh, you know, why can't he be at home? But for my parents, as Simon was growing bigger and bigger, they didn't feel that he was going to be safe at home with a newborn, and they just felt they couldn't care for him. Well, if you know anything about institutions for the mentally challenged, developmentally delayed back in the 60s, they were really awful places. And I have a lot of childhood memories of going to visit Simon, And without going into too many gory details, let me just tell you that whenever I smell sewage, I flash back to the hall, the reception hall uh, that we would walk into. It was probably just a room, but to me as a child, it was a hall that we would walk into when we would go and take Simon out for a walk. And what I remember from that time was the total lack of dignity and respect that he was treated with, as well as my mother. And I became very aware of that parents, that uh, siblings, that family can have a lot to say about a loved one uh, and want to influence their care, and the medical system is not always receptive to it. So flash forward, I became a physician, and then I picked this field called physical medicine and rehabilitation. And I picked that field because physical medicine and rehabilitation was all about helping people be functional in the context of their lives. So I worked as a rehabilitation physician, often focusing on people with spinal cord injury, head injury, stroke, dementia, that sort of thing. And I got pulled early and often into leadership. 
And for about the last 10 plus years of my career in corporate medicine, I was a C-suite leader, chief medical officer, uh, medical group president, that kind of role. And during the pandemic, we all looked at our values and I looked at mine and I thought, I don't want to cut another budget. I don't want to discipline yet another doctor with poor social skills. I want to get back to helping people. I want to do it myself. And I had seen so many people get lost along the way. I would see the malpractice suits that came through. And sometimes what was behind them, I mean, occasionally there was a legitimate error, but there was often a breakdown in communication, a lack of trust, a lot of system-wide system issues that could really be addressed if you intervened early. And so I decided to become an advocate, and I left the corporate world and started my MD advisor. Okay, so that's great. Now tell us exactly what it is that you do. Now you may do a number of things, but share with the people who are listening, the people who are watching us, what it is you do, the value you provide to your patients or to the family of your patients or to both. And now it's time once again for the Sandrowski Business Minute. And today we have tax expert, Catherine Raker. All right, Catherine, do I need to pay quarterly estimates on my taxes? And how do I know when it's time for me to pay quarterly estimates? Because I think most people just think of taxes as a once a year thing. That's a good question. Um, so, and it all depends on the facts and circumstances. If you're a W-2 employee where your employer takes regular withholding, you likely don't need to pay quarterly taxes. However, if most of your income comes from investment or self-employment, you should be paying quarterly estimates. The government likes to receive taxes in even increments, and that's why withholdings work so well, because it's a weekly or a monthly withdrawal. But the quarterly payments on your investments, your investment income, or on your self-employment income are necessary to keep you from paying underpayment penalties. Ooh, nobody wants those underpayment penalties. Okay, that'll do it for today's Sandrowski Business Minute. If you need help with this or any other tax-related issue, please call 866-717-1607. That's 866-717-1607. Sandrowski Corporate Advisors, they're a CPA firm with a different perspective. So mainly, but not always, mainly I'm hired by the loved one when they have a sick spouse or a sick parent who's in the hospital. And often that parent has been in the hospital. It's not just a simple surgery. Something happened, the, uh, the patient, the person with a medical condition didn't do well, and they may be somewhat stuck. And the family is feeling frustrated, they're feeling mistrustful, they're feeling overwhelmed, and they talk to somebody about how they're feeling and the, frankly the suffering they're going through trying to help their loved one, and somebody who knows me says, hey, call Dr. Gerda up, she may be able to help you. And then what I do is I look at the medical information, I look to see what's going on and explain it, I also look to see what's not going on. Because believe it or not, in today's world, in the hospital, you're going to get hospitalist of the day. Uh, maybe you'll get hospitalist for a couple days in a row, but they're often very, very stretched and variable in terms of how much time and energy they're able to devote to any particular patient. So I get in there and I advocate uh, for the patient, if necessary, directly to the doctors or nurses. 
I also help the family know what to focus on because you can get completely overwhelmed and you don't know if that symptom really matters or if it's this symptom to pay attention to. And I help people understand what's going on medically and what's going on from a here's how it actually works. And when this doctor said this, this is what they really meant. Because I speak doctor and I speak rehab, I'm able to just translate for a lot of things. And when people have information, they feel so much better. So let's uh, let's take let's take this from start to finish. When you when you have a loved one who is diagnosed with a serious condition, I'm going to use my uh, myself and my my father's situation as an example. A uh, decade ago, my father was diagnosed with breast cancer. Men get breast cancer uh, just like women do. They get it less frequently, but they still get it. When he was diagnosed with breast cancer. Everyone in the family was first in shock. Uh, then they were obviously scared, petrified would be a better word. Um, and when you're in that heightened emotional state, and it's it can last from the first hour to the first week to sometimes the first month, when you're in that heightened emotional state, your thinking becomes very, very narrow. Your body produces a lot of adrenaline. You... You know, you begin to think of things um, in a very linear way and you immediately go to the worst case scenario. My point about describing all that, that's what I felt. You don't make the best decisions. In fact, you may even be paralyzed and not know what decisions to make in that in, in those first beginning stages. Dr. Gerda, talk about why it's important for us to call you at the very first stages, because when I got that phone call from my father, my father, my father went to the doctor by himself. He lost a lot of weight, felt a lump in his breast while he was taking a shower and thought to himself, you know, I don't know what to do about this. And on a phone call with him, I said, look, you should go get it checked out. You know, it's probably nothing. It's probably just some fat or whatever, but go get it checked out. So he makes an appointment and he goes to get it checked out and he's in there by himself and the, the, uh, his general practitioner feels it. He says, you know what? We need to send you for a mammogram. He goes for the mammogram by himself because even the general practitioner was like, you know what? It's probably nothing, but you should get it checked out. He goes to the met, gets the mammogram done and they decide that they want to do an ultrasound. They do the mammogram and the ultrasound and they tell him he's got to make an appointment with an oncologist. He's still doesn't think there's anything he needs to be concerned about. I didn't really even think there was anything to be concerned about. After the oncologist's appointment, he was in a state of shock. He calls me. My mother and my father are in a state of shock. My sister is immediately thinking about the worst case scenario. And I start to think to myself, I don't, you know, I don't even know who to call to find out who he should go see for treatment of this because... I, you know, the oncologist he went to see was not an expert in breast cancer in men. So we didn't really even know what to do or, or who to call. Now, in that scenario, if I had you, I would have immediately called you and said, do we need to find someone who knows something about breast cancer in men versus a regular oncologist who deals with breast cancer in women all day, every day? Um, you know, I didn't know what to do at that point. So I went through my network and I found somebody who had expertise in treating breast cancer. But it took me two days to find that oh. person. And it took me a lot of phone calls and a lot of legwork 
I could have called you and you probably could have handled it immediately. So if we were to call you right at the beginning, how would you have helped us? Well, the first thing I would have done was to listen for what your father wanted because and what you as a family wanted, because sometimes in a situation like that, the person who's got the medical condition is, you know, in the mind of leave me alone. I've had enough done. I don't want anything more. In which case, we would have talked about that and we would have talked through the family in terms of what the goals were for treatment. If the person with the medical condition was like, listen, if you can find me a specialist, I'm open to it. Then we would have talked about, do you want to travel for an opinion? Do you want to find somebody local? What are you willing to do? I'm a facilitator. I'm not going to be the person that says, here's what you should do for your condition. So let's, in your family situation, it sounds like, you know, your dad and you wanted to get a breast cancer specialist, you found one. Then what I would do would be, I would just gently behind the scenes vet that doctor because occasionally, it's not the norm, but occasionally you get some fly-by-night folks. I would make sure for you that this was a legitimate physician with legitimate credentials to help you with the problem. And then we would talk about what do you want to get out of this visit? And I would likely have a conversation with the family, with the person with the medical condition. And during that conversation, some of the fears would come out. When, if they were really far out their fears, I would try to be reassuring and provide medical information. Many fears are very legitimate. And I would acknowledge that this can be a very frightening time and try to help people feel, it sounds kind of funny, but feel okay about feeling bad and feeling frightened, and then help people through that fear, use their logic to focus in on what are the key things we want to get out of this appointment. Um, and, you know, people always say, you know, go into the, to see the doctor with a list of questions. Well, you don't always, some, I've seen people come in, you know, they're practically, uh, you know, rolling out, you know, 10 pages. We'd want to focus it down on the top questions as well as have reserved questions in case there's time. And then potentially I might go to the appointment if that's what family and, and the person with medical condition wanted and listen. I might say absolutely nothing during the appointment, but I'd be doing more than taking notes. I'd be understanding what's being said so that afterwards when everybody gets together and says, well, what did you think? What did you think? What did you think? What do you want to do? I would be able to translate back Here's, no, I didn't quite hear that. Maybe you kind of wanted to hear that, but here is what I actually think the doctor was trying to tell you. Because especially in terminal or potentially terminal conditions, there can be a certain amount of, I don't want to call it double speak because that's not the right word, but a certain amount of gentle speak that families sometimes have to interpret. So I, I love what you said there. One of the things that it was puzzling to us or I guess is kind of puzzling and frustrating is that science is specific. Science is science is science. I mean, you know, when people say, well, it's not science, this is science. Medicine is science. Right. So when you're meeting with a doctor, if a doctor doesn't have all the data, if a doctor doesn't have all the evidence, a doctor isn't going to give you a definitive answer. So when you go to uh, to an appointment with a doctor, especially your first appointment, when you have a scenario like the one we're talking about, 
the the lack of specificity is maddening and i think having someone like you to translate why there was a lack of specificity because we still haven't had these tests done and because they can't say with certainty they can't even give you a probability until they do these tests and they take this blood work and they look at these different things like having someone there to explain why the medical professionals, because nurses do this too, physicians assistants do this too, why they use the language they do. I mean, my opinion, and this is just my opinion, is that the litigious nature of society has kept physicians from giving direct responses to patients. You know, there there were a couple of things said in that first meeting where if the doctor would have said, listen, we need to do a lot more tests, but here's the one thing that I know. From what I've seen on the film and from what I've seen on the ultrasound and from the size of the mass you have in your breast, if you were my father, I wouldn't be overly concerned. If the physician had said something like that, we would have left that that appointment feeling a lot better than, well, I can't really say definitively because here's what we need to do. And once we do this, once we remove the mass, and then we remove the the edges of the, the outer edges of the mass, and then we check the lymph nodes, I can tell you, and then the language they use is the language they teach them to use to avoid liability. I can tell you what the probability of um, of survival is for five years or more. So, you know, my father has this tiny little lump in his breast which he thought was nothing five minutes ago, and now he's leaving this appointment. All he heard was five-year survival rate, right? And, of you know, course. the poor physician, They all they told him, they told him to talk that way so that he can avoid absolute liability in case a patient takes things the wrong way or in case things don't go the way that they, that, that they normally would go. Having you there... You could have said to him, listen, that's the language they have to use. Here's here's what he here's what I'm reading into what he's saying. Am I correct in that? Yes. <laughs> that's simple answer, but I mean you don't yes. you don't have to worry about you you're the patient advocate, so you don't have to worry about that absolute liability. You can say, listen, the doctor can't tell you this is nothing because there's a two percent chance it might be something. And he can't tell you it's a two percent chance because it might be six percent. He might be off, right? Well, yes, and what I would also say if let's so we talked about a pre meeting. If during that pre meeting one of the questions it isn't the uh, typical and an obvious question is, well, how worried about this should I be? And there are ways to ask that question and ways to ask it that don't require an exact, give me my detailed prognosis doctor. Um, And if that, part of my role in my mind would be asking that question of the doctor right then and there in the very first appointment, knowing that they can't give you exact answers because they're still lacking a lot of data. But physician, you know, there are ways to ask the question, well, with with what you've seen in this age group, is it this much worry or this much worry, knowing, doctor, that you can't say precisely. So there are ways to get that information out. And that's part of why having an, an, an meeting ahead of time and really focusing on what are the core things uh, that you want to know, it matters. 
And sometimes I do jump in. When a doctor dodges a patient's questions, I'll jump in with doctor speak and reassurance, just like it did. It's okay if you can't give us the exact answer. Could you just give us a order of magnitude? And usually they'll do it. Uh, but it takes somebody who's talked to doctors their whole life uh, to know and assess because different doctors respond differently. They're human beings. So one doctor might be worried about being imprecise scientifically. Another doctor might be worried about liability. Another doctor might not answer you simply because they don't know because this is really what they do. And they have to go look it up before they say anything stupid. And so part of what I'm doing in the moment is assessing what's going on behind the scenes with this doctor and then trying to assess the situation and act in a way that my client then gets the information they need. Yeah, that's. Uh, thank you for describing it that way. That was very clear. Now, tell us a little bit about doing research uh, after the fact. Let's go. Let's go down the road. By the By the way, for those of you who are listening, in case you're interested, my father's completely fine. Uh, he had the he had the tumor removed. It was like stage zero. Uh, the margins were fine. No spread to the lymph nodes. He's I mean, he's living, he's 83 years old, and he's as sharp as he ever was. Everything's fine. So um, he didn't just have the tumor removed. He had a, he had a, a mastectomy, but totally, completely and totally fine. The radiation for a few weeks afterwards, a little bit of discomfort with that, but nothing, uh, nothing near as serious as our minds had led us to believe. So, Dr. Gerda, next thing I want to talk to you about is research when treatment, uh, when you're looking for treatment alternatives. I I don't want to be morbid here, but I was talking to a friend yesterday and, um, you know, his wife has, has, uh, cancer and there it's, it's a recurrence and there's, there's, there are no good options other than clinical trials. And they're trying to make the decision whether the clinical trials, the, the discomfort of the clinical trials, will be worthwhile for uh, for the patient, for his wife. Is that something that you could get involved in? Could you dig into that and explain to them exactly what some of the discomfort might be and, you know, uh, help them make a decision as to whether it makes sense based on whatever the probability is that it will prolong the the loved one's life? Uh the answer is it depends. Um, sometimes, occasionally, I get somebody who calls me up and is looking for a miracle cure. Um, and that's not necessarily going to be what I can offer. Um, sometimes people just need to understand whether it's what's involved in a trial or what's involved in... Sometimes I've found a, f- a few clients where I've been with them for a while that were looking at, well, what is the criteria uh, or could I get my loved one into this trial? And what I've done is being able to translate for them their loved one's conditions and looked up the eligibility for the trial and explained where there is a match and where there isn't a match so that they could then make the decision as to whether they wanted to pursue it. If someone is offered to be part of a trial, there are usually a lot of experts there that explain in great detail what's involved. I can certainly help translate it, but usually it's fairly, trials can be fairly regulated in terms of what has to be disclosed. And I would say in that circumstance, I'm probably more of a backup than an in, you know, in front advocate. 
Okay, so uh, I, I have another scenario for you, and I know that there are people out there that have this going on in their lives right now. So um, my son, when he was very young, was diagnosed with a relatively new condition called eosinophilic esophagitis. Basically, his, uh, his allergy to a whole host of foods caused his stomach to produce excess acid, which, which was eroding his esophagus, which led to a cough, which is what he presented with, which is what led us to take him to a doctor in the first place. And he was treated for asthma and he was treated for a whole host of things before we found a doctor who, through our own persistence, before we found a doctor who said, this looks like this condition that is not, uh, that has just started being diagnosed in the last, at the time it was like the last five years. He said, I want you to go see this doctor here at Baptist in Miami because he's working on these cases almost exclusively here in South Florida. And one of the things the doctor did was he put my son on an adult dose of Nexium. And this is when my son was like five. And he said, look, that's going to suppress the acid in his stomach while you're making modifications to his diet. And you know, there's a certain way you can potentially reprogram his body so that when he goes through puberty, this condition could potentially go away. He said there are there are some experimental medicines, but he's he's kind of young for that. They put him on the Nexium, and Dr. Gerda, I being the lunatic that I am, start Googling, and when you Google, it's a very dangerous thing. You immediately <laughs> come up with a study of people who took Nexium for like, you know, five years, and like, you know, half of them were dead at the end of five years. Well, not being a, not being a scientist, I'm, I didn't happen to look that the people were all like, you know, in their 80s and they had like heart conditions and everything else. So I bring the study into the doctor and, you know, the doctor's like, everybody brings me that study. And he <laughs> went and broke it down for me. Like, I didn't God. read through all the medical jargon in the study. If we had you... And we said to you, you know, Nick has eosinophilic esophagitis. Dr. Munoz, who's supposed to be the best, is putting him on Nexium. Dr. Gerda, what are the risks of a five-year-old being on Nexium, let's say, for five years? You could have looked at that research and weighed it against other medical research and given us a good opinion, correct? Yes, I certainly could have, although I want to be clear, I need to be careful in that I'm not that subspecialist. And so my commentary should not replace commentary of somebody who is a subspecialist or a specialist or, or the person's physician. I'm but, here to but, supplement hang on, Dr. that. Gerda, but you would know better than me what questions I should be asking the doctor. And that I could help you with. I could say, here's what the study showed. This is what it looks like to me. Here's how you might want to frame the conversation with your doctor so that you could go into your doctor with something specific and also so you avoid the doctor going, oh, another one bringing in that damn study. You know, because it's not that's exactly, there's anything that's wrong. That's exactly what he said. That is, he's like, everybody brings me that stupid study. He's like, you know, that Google, it's the worst doctor on the planet. I mean, it was like, and I, yes. we were, we had seen him so much, we became quite friendly with him. And he, he is, Dr. Munoz, if you have a child who has a uh, pediatric uh, GI issue, Dr. Munoz in Miami working out of Baptist, working out of the Baptist uh, hospital, um, Baptist hospital system is, is the best. He spent an enormous amount of time explaining, you know, basically debunking what was in that study. But Dr. Gerda, most doctors are not going to do that. They just don't right. have the time. Right. And so that is part of 
uh, by having an advocate involved, I help people focus. I help them focus on what things are legitimate to worry about and what things not so much, because it's absolutely impossible. And when somebody's in the hospital, take all of these things that you're talking about, and it's a thousand times worse because the stakes are higher, the medical conditions are worse, and you're not necessarily going to have that steady physician presence. So, Dr. Gerda, what about when you have a loved one in the hospital and, um, you know, they, they, there's just not time to call you. a sudden onset of a situation, right? And you want to make sure that everything possible is being done. Maybe there you have some skepticism about because insurance uh, governs or you perceive that insurance governs, not you, Dr. Gerda, the patient and the patient's uh, families perceive that insurance governs a lot of the decisions that people in hospitals make. Is that a scenario where when, when there's a loved one in the hospital and, you know, they they can ask for a copy of the chart and they, they basically will scan the chart and send it to you and say, Dr. Gerda, what else should we be looking into? Even though if it's not your specialty, is that something that you could help with? So I often, I found, and I didn't know when I started this business uh, almost two years ago, that I was going to end up specializing in people in the hospital or in rehabs. But it turns out when it comes to really complicated issues, that's where I'm seeing a lot of things not going so well. Um, and so, yes, uh, I make myself available, make myself available evenings and weekends if somebody's got a loved one in the hospital to address their urgent issues. So it doesn't have to take a lot of time. We can get started right away. And then, yes, um, I hear what's going on. I hear what the concerns are. Uh, and I take a look if medical records are available. And usually families can make them available to me because these days with patient portals, you can access records. You can get real-time information. And if I can't get it that way, uh, you know, if the family can't uh, provide it, then I'll talk to the doctor. I'll talk to the nurse. I'll talk to the patient, obviously, the person with a medical condition, do whatever is necessary. And part of what I'm doing when someone's in the hospital is acting as a, sort of a guardian of good care, as well as a translator that saves the hospitalist time. So, for example, I have a client right now who's in the hospital. He had a surgery all the way back, it's almost two months ago now. Surgery went okay, but he had some complications afterwards. Family called me after he had left the hospital, gone to rehab, and bounced back, and they were not sure whether they trusted the hospital. And that was their initial question, is the hospital any good? The answer was yes, it was a good hospital. There wasn't a problem. But... You had the hospitalists who were on for two days and then on, you know, a different set would come for three days and then the weekend person would be different. And the weekend people have very, very high patient loads. And so, you know, the, for example, he had an underlying iron deficiency anemia and nobody was working it up. And his anemia was so bad that they were just treating it with blood transfusions. Yeah. Well, finally, um, when I was able to get once I understood what was going on and I talked to the hospital, she worked it up and she was like, holy cow, yep. Yeah. And then so she treated it and that has helped reduce his need for blood transfusions. Another thing that happened one day, I was watching because I could see in this patient, I could see that the white count, which is a measure of infection, was going up. And I was looking for the labs the next day and I couldn't see any labs. 
and I called in and I heard, oh, well, there's a bunch of blood tubes sitting here in the room. I was like, why are there blood tubes sitting in the room? You know, the tubes that the, the phlebotomist sure. uses. Yeah. Well, it turns out they'd had a hard time getting blood and they just forgot to come back. So he didn't have his blood work done that day. And the nurse was like, well, I don't know. And so then I said, well, who's the hospitalist? You know, perhaps, you know, I know that it, that it was changing over. Could I talk to the hospitalist? She was like, I don't know. So I had already at that point in time talked to the hospitalists enough that I had the, the back number. I called. The answering server said, we don't know who this patient's hospitalist is. Three phone calls later, while they tried to track down who the newly assigned doctor was, finally that evening, I got a call back. They had clearly lost him in the shuffle. Oh, boy. You know, and this is a, a wonderful, good tertiary care hospital and this just happened last week so things happen all the time little things can become big things and you need somebody watching and advocating to make sure that that care is as good as it possibly can be okay so dr gerda now let's talk about uh the difference between you and uh, a great primary care doctor you know in my case uh i <laughs> so I, I mean, it sounds like everything happens to my family, but I'm convinced that this is happening to everybody all the time. We just don't talk about it all that much. In my case, uh, I went to a brand new doctor. I moved away from where my physician was, like an hour away. I moved down south in, in Miami-Dade County, and I decided I was going to go see a new doctor. And I had a regular battery of tests for my annual physical done. And um, I go in there happy-go-lucky because I've always been relatively healthy. And uh, the doctor looks at my test results and he says, I'm going to refer you to um, to a specialist because I don't like your PSA. Your PSA is is really high. And, and this is before, now they have even more advanced tests to detect uh, prostate cancer, early detection tests to, to detect prostate cancer. This is going back probably 15 years. So this is this is before they had these advanced tests, and PSA was probably the only early indicator, other than a uh, a digital exam, which has its own. It's another day at Disneyland, right? So the doctor says to me, you know, it's your PSA is really high for somebody your age. I don't like it. I'm going to refer you to a urologist. And I said, well, what do you mean, really high? And he shows me, and it, I forget what it was, like four and a half, uh, five. And he's like, you know, it should be under one for somebody your age. Because I, I was relatively young. I, I, 15 years ago, I was I was much younger, obviously, than I am now. So I said, well, what, is that, what does that mean? He's like, well, it could mean nothing. Or he said it could be something you want to check out. Again, not, you know, not giving me any definitive answers. And I said, well, you know, could the, could the test have been contaminated? Could it be something? He's like, you know, he's like, that's a good point. He's like, would you like us to redo the test right here? We can redo it right here. What am I going to say? So I said, of course, yes, redo the test. And that test came back even higher. <laughs> so he says to me, I, I really think you should go see a urologist. So now I'm freaked out. I, you know, I had a, a two-year-old baby and, you know, I, uh, I, I was, I was beside myself and I didn't know didn't know what to do, didn't know who to call. Obviously, you weren't doing what you do now. I didn't even know you or who to call. And I called my old primary care physician because I had a great relationship with him. He became my primary care physician when I met him at a friend's house for dinner, and he seemed like a regular guy. <laughs> and he said, you know, I'm a doctor right here, and I'm probably in your health plan. So he became my doctor. So I call him, 
And I said, I called him by his first name all the time. I said, Jay, this is what happened. He said, uh, you know, this is how long ago it was. Fax me, fax me the stuff. I'll take a look at it. And he says to me, Dave, listen. He said, in most of these cases, there's some underlying infection that's causing the PSA to spike. The The urologist should take a look at it. But what he's most likely going to recommend is that you wait a few months and then rerun the test. He said the alternative is a really invasive um, a really invasive biopsy that if you didn't like the digital exam, you're really not going to enjoy the biopsy. <laughs> and uh, and having never been to prison, that wasn't my thing. So I was like, OK, so I will, uh, you know, I will then, you know, do I will do what you say. And he's like, no, go see the urologist anyway. Here's my point about this whole story. My point about this whole story is like no other primary care physician would have been that blunt with me. So what, in in my opinion, you know, you probably would have looked at that, you would have done the research, and you would have said, you need to go see their urologist, but there's two things it can be, and the lesser, uh, the, the more likely is that you have an underlying infection, very low probability is that it's something else like a very aggressive form of cancer. That's what Jay told me because I was friends with him. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to get that out of him. So explain to us the difference between you and a primary care physician, not just in a scenario like this, but in all sorts of scenarios. Well, so keep in mind, I am not the person's doctor. So, you know, I I do not want to in any way want anybody who's listening to this to interpret what I'm saying as I'm giving a client medical advice. What I'm doing is giving people information for them to discuss with their physicians to then make medical decisions. Um, I don't I don't order tests. I don't order labs. I don't order medications. What I'm doing is helping people understand medical information, know what questions to ask, and advocating when necessary, especially in hospitals or in rehabs. So People actually often don't need me in an outpatient world. Sometimes they do if they've got a very complicated condition going on. And I'm always happy to talk to someone. But a primary care doctor is going to know a person's entire medical condition, and they're going to give them appropriate, correct medical advice for them. I'm not here to second guess somebody's doctor. I'm here to say, Here's some information. Here's some information. Here's how you can go and talk to your doctor about it. Yeah, I mean, I the comfort, though, from having that conversation is immeasurable because had I not had that conversation, I would have been freaked out. Like, you know, there was probably a less than 5% chance it was aggressive cancer and a 95% chance that it was some sort of underlying infection. Had I, you know, gone to the urologist with just that information, I would have said to the urologist, listen, you know, I heard that there was a prob- that there was a possibility, not probability, possibility this could be an aggressive form of cancer. And the urologist would have been like, sure, that's a possibility. He would have, you know, he probably wouldn't have gauged it for me. Um, but his advice would have been to wait a couple of months. In fact, because that's what I did. I went to the urologist and I said, listen, you know, this is what happened. Here's the test. He did an exam and he said, you know, your prostate seems to be the normal size. I think waiting is not going to be a problem. 60 days, come back. And he said, if you're going to have overwhelming anxiety during the course of the next 60 days, we could do a biopsy and you could get an answer as to what this is in two weeks. 
He's like, but the biopsy is quite uncomfortable. It's up to you. So, you know, that having that knowledge was was more was more of a comfort to me. But knowing that going into the going into the appointment certainly would have been certainly would have been a lot more a lot more helpful. Um, okay, Dr. Gerda, what do you like most about being a patient advocate rather than being a you know a, a physician administrator in a hospital? How is this better? What do you enjoy about doing this more than being a physician administrator in a healthcare system or in a hospital or in a in a in an individual practice? So what I love about it is making that difference for individual families. It's a form of relieving suffering because the families, when somebody is really ill and they're still in they're still in the hospital or even if they're home, there's so much confusion. Um, they're you know trying to get an elder home who needs services. People don't know what that's about, and and helping them know, yep. This looks like it's completely overwhelming, but we can break it down. We can talk about all the different issues. We can talk about their their chances of regaining function and what those time frames look like, you know, in the context of all the information you've been given. And we can look for other ways to make things better can be very, very comforting for people. Um, so I love relieving their suffering and helping people come to terms with what's going on with their loved one, because sometimes what's going on is very, very serious and their loved one may not recover or may recover in a way that is not as complete as they would have liked. And people, especially in these serious conditions, can become very angry and very upset. Uh, they can blame and sometimes their blame is just anger that's displaced and sometimes their blame is completely correct. And I'm able to help them know who to trust. And I love doing that because then things start to line up. And I often see in families, one person's blaming somebody and another person's blaming somebody else. And I can help the whole family come together and see things more clearly. And that's especially helpful later on down the line. God forbid the, the elder passes away. If, I don't. Hopefully, you've never experienced this in your family. But when an elder passes away in a very complicated situation, you get a lot of woulda, coulda, shouldas, and there's a lot of suffering that happens that nobody talks about. As people second guess, well, I never should have taken them to that facility. I never should have listened to that doctor. And I get a lot of meaning out of you know. We go back to the very original thing I said. I think what matters is function. It, and inform decisions in the context of the person and their family. And so much of medicine these days is, oh, you've got this condition here, take this pill. And understanding, well, if I take this pill, what happens? What are the side effects? How does it interact with my other drugs? And even asking the question, well, what happens if I don't take this pill? Which is the equivalent of your, well, what happens if I don't have my prostate biopsy? And helping people really have enough information to make informed decisions is a deeply, deeply satisfying thing for me. Yeah, I, uh, I'm, I'm glad that you feel that way. And as you were saying that, I'm thinking to myself that in all of the scenarios we discussed, every time I talked to a friend who had been through something similar and came out the other side, you know, intact and fine, that always made me feel better. 
just imagine if I had uh, if I had an expert that I could talk to who could tell me the right questions to ask so that the actual medical professionals could have given me that same level of comfort or level of um, level of information, the, 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 the act of being informed so that I would feel like I had done exactly what you said, everything I possibly could. I had left no stone unturned. I think that peace of mind is worth its weight in gold. Okay, Dr. Greta, I'm going to ask you now to take a minute and think of three things we should take away from our time together. I'm going to give you a minute to do that because I need to let the folks who are listening and the folks who are watching know that we are brought to you by Sandrowski Corporate Advisors. Earlier in the show, you heard a Sandrowski Business Minute. If you want to reach out to the folks at Sandrowski Corporate Advisors, all you need to do is call this number, 866-717-1607. That's 866-717-1607. Give Sandrowski a call today. They're a CPA firm with a different perspective. We're also brought to you by My Revenue Roadmap Guide. Now, you're a professional. You're out there. You're working hard. You're looking to build a business. You're looking to attract the best quality clients. You want to connect with people who you can really be of service to. And you're wondering where your next client's going to come from. You're wondering how you can attract higher quality clients in larger numbers. Well, I have a business development plan that I take and customize with my clients. I want to make it available to you. And I'm going to do that for free. It's my gift to you for listening to the show, for watching the show. Here's what you need to do to get this free Revenue Roadmap Guide. I need you to go to this website, write it down, it's all together, revenueroadmapguide.com. Put all three of those words together, no spaces, revenueroadmapguide.com. There, you can enter your contact info and you'll be able to download immediately the same guide I use with my clients. I customize it for them. You can check it out and customize it yourself so that you can predictably, reliably attract high quality clients to your professional firm, to your professional practice, revenueroadmapguide.com. Enter your contact info, get your free guide today. We're talking to Dr. Gerda Maisel. She's a patient advocate. Her contact info is down in the show notes. Her email address is there. I'm going to give you her phone number. She'd rather have you email her than call her. But if you heard this show and you're so fired up that you can't wait, call this number 845-316-0175, 845-316-0175. If you're thinking about doing something and you want her guidance, you want to make an appointment, use her email address. It's down in the show notes. Just scroll down right below where you're listening to this or where you're watching it. Her email address starts with GM, just like her initials. You can copy and paste it or click on it right there. Okay, Dr. Gerda, what are the three things we should take away from our time together today? Oh, well, thanks. Uh, I think a couple of things. One, if you're not a medical professional, it can be really hard to know which medical professional to trust. Uh, And having a physician who's an advisor who can vet those physicians and help you know this doctor may be a little rude, but they're a good doctor and they're color. This is me saying color within the lines or this doctor is really being nice to your mom. But the care he's giving your dad is not good at all. And this doctor is really outside the lines as a physician. An advisor can tell you Uh, the second thing is that if you're feeling overwhelmed, it's not you. 
This stuff is really complicated, and especially if you're dealing with medical information, rehabilitation information, what kind of caregivers do we need? How do we get through this healthcare maze? It's really complicated. It's not you, and you may need some help. And the third thing is I encourage people to not have regrets. When they're dealing with a loved one who is really seriously ill, reach out to an advisor so that you don't second-guess yourself down the line. It's really important to feel like you did the right things with your loved one at the time and you don't regret the decisions that you all made together at the time. Perfect. Such great advice. Thank you, Dr. Gerda, for that. All right, folks, if you need help with anything that we mentioned today, you can reach out to Dr. Gerda. All you need to do is scroll down below where you're watching, where you're listening to this. Look for her email address there. Copy and paste it. Shoot her off an email. If it's an emergency or a semi-emergency, if it's an emergency, call 911. Don't call Dr. Gerda. But if it's if it's a situation where you feel a sense of urgency, you can call her phone number. Her phone number is down there, too. Dr. Gerda, thank you so much for joining us today. It was an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed uh, being here. Have a good day. All righty, folks, that'll do it for this episode of the Inside BS Show. My name is Dave Lorenzo. We're back here every day with a brand new show for you. We'll see you right back here again tomorrow. Until then, here's hoping you make a great living and live a great life. <laughs>